Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, April the 3rd, 2023. What's a good Monday without a show about the British royal family? We did a show a few weeks ago with Valentine Lowe, who... Uh, has a new book out on the British royal family and the latest scandal. It's called Courtiers, the Harry and Meghan Markle scandal. But of course, uh, one of the things that uh, Valentine suggested is that the British royal family is transforming itself, or at least trying to, in a into a 21st century institution. And this is certainly not the first or the last crisis in the history of the British royal family. Back in the middle of the 20th century in 1937, there was, of course, an even bigger scandal, the scandal of the abdication of uh, Edward VIII uh, because of his uh, entanglement, if that's the right word, with Wallace Simpson. He abdicated his throne uh, and he was replaced by his brother, George VI. Many of you will remember George VI because he was the central character in the the King's Speech, and he was the husband of uh, a woman called Elizabeth uh, Bowes Lyon, who is always remembered, uh, I think, in Britain as the Queen Mother. Um, we have a new book out today, or actually tomorrow, by one of America's leading historians uh, on authorities on the British royal family, Sally Bedell-Smith, on the relationship on the marriage between George VI and Elizabeth, the marriage that saved the monarchy. Uh, and Sally is joining us. Uh, Sally, to what extent does history always seem to repeat itself with the British royal family, or are these scandals different? Well, I think there have been many scandals. Obviously, the abdication was the biggest scandal in that part of the 20th century. Um, there were other scandals in the family, too. Um, their younger brother, George, um, Prince George, had a cocaine and, and morphine problem and had to effectively go into a form of rehab in those days. Another brother, Prince Henry, um, was accused of, of, of fostering an illegitimate child, um, which turned out not to be true. But the big one, as you say, was the abdication. And um, uh, the Duke of York, who I'll, for, everybody called him Bertie, um, Prince Albert, was, was married to Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the Duchess of York. And they were merrily going along and doing their duty. I've, I found it fascinating to discover. And my main source for this book, I mean, there were a number of sources, but the, the queen, the late queen, gave me access to her uh, family's papers in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle. And so I was there for three months going through all the diaries and letters. And I could see... Um, I could see the abdication sort of playing out from their point of view. And, um, and they, they, you know, they really, it's not something that they wanted. Um, they were, he was, I would say that um, the Duke of York was sort of the, they wouldn't have called him the spare in those days, 
but he was. He was the second in line. And so he was the Harry. Um, he, he was the Harry. And the thing that struck me the most was that he really found meaning in being this bear. He created a role for himself um, as, a, as an advocate for working men and uh, did a lot of uh, did a lot of work on behalf of um, making better relations between uh, business leaders and the laboring men uh, and had a lot of initiatives that he pursued that were very positive. So it wasn't a matter of just going around and visiting places. He actually did things. Um, they called him the industrial prince and it, and his brothers sort of mockingly referred to him as the foreman, but he took it very seriously. He did a lot of good and he had, as I discovered even more when I was in the Royal Archives reading through his diaries that he began on the first day of World War II and he kept up for nearly seven years, that he had a very democratic uh, 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 spirit to him. Um, and that was evidenced um, in a lot of ways in his farsighted thinking about bringing the glasses together at the end of the war, even before he became king. He had a boys' camp that was fascinating, where he brought 200 boys from elite private uh, private boarding schools together with boys from the factory floor and the mines, and he treated them equally. And for a week, and he tried to erase all evidence. Right, so Sally, class. we'll get into that a little bit later. But many people will be familiar. You've you've written a number of books on the royal family, on Prince Charles, on Elizabeth, on uh, Diana. You've also done some books on the Kennedys and the Clintons. Right. Why did you, as an American journalist, you were born in Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania. Yes. Why were you, do you think, chosen by uh, the former queen, Elizabeth II, to have access to the archives? Why did she call you? Did she actually call you? Did you get a letter? <laughs> no, I wish, it, I wish it had been that easy. Um, but no, I think it had a lot to do with the books that I had written about her and about then Prince Charles. And my understanding was that they had both gone down well. Obviously, neither of them was a hagiography. I portrayed both the, the Queen and Charles as very human people and tried to show uh, aspects that the public didn't really know or appreciate both in the way they worked and in their personal lives. But I think both of them, um, both of those books conveyed that without being intrusive. And when I, I decided to write a book about George VI and, and, and Elizabeth, it really was something I've been thinking about for a few years and having written about the Queen, having written about Charles, I really wanted to do the sort of origin story of the of the modern monarchy. Yeah, um, the, the, the book, the subtitle of the book, and again, sometimes people deflect this and blame it on their editors. The subtitle of the book is "The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy." Um, is that literally true, Sally? Did it? I believe it is. I believe it, and and I think there's a lot of evidence. Not only was um, then Edward VIII, who reigned for 326 days in 1936. 
not only was he um, intending to marry a woman who would never pass muster either with the church or the government, um, he was a, a really bad king. And, uh, and he wasn't he, a very nice man. I mean, he was, some people at least accuse him of being a Nazi sympathizer. Well, he certainly was a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, after he abdicated, he and Wallace, his then wife, the, the Duchess of Windsor, went to Germany and uh, met with Hitler and his whole co high command. And even prior to that, when he was king, he had, he had very cozy relationships with the German ambassadors. Uh, he, he was, as I discovered in reading a lot of the correspondence for this book, he was a shockingly bad king. Um, he was really inattentive to his to his duties. Um, he he was he was um, indiscreet, so indiscreet that the foreign office was withholding papers from him, and everybody around them knew this. And at one point, shortly before the abdication, um, the future George the Sixth was talking to one of. Um, one of then King Edward VIII's advisors, and he said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to have to really clean up this mess and restore the reputation of the monarchy again. Yeah, it's and interesting, Sally, that, um, that of course, Edward VIII abdicated because of his relationship with uh, Wallace Simpson. And then you've written this book, George VI and Elizabeth, The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy. So you're thinking of the monarchy in dynastic terms, in terms of marriage. Is that how we should think about the British monarchy or any monarchy for that matter? Well, it is, it is in dynastic terms. It has a very... Um, a very the marriages firm... matter. It's not just... Marriages do matter. They really do matter. And I think uh, George V and Queen Mary were a sort of, you know, that was a sort of model for family life. And uh, Victoria kind of established that as a model for the monarchy. Uh, and, and she, son, yeah, but it was a, uh, but Victoria's marriage, there was an element of, of, of romance. Was there an element of romance in this uh, marriage between uh, George VI and his wife, Elizabeth? Absolutely. It's really, it's such a great love story, a very dramatic love story, one that I hadn't fully appreciated until I was able to read the letters and particularly to read her diaries. Um, um, then Bertie, when he was a Duke of York, fell in love with her when he saw her dancing at a military ball in the, in the summer of 1920. And he pursued her ardently for 30 months. He proposed to her two times and she turned him down and they saw each other and kept up a correspondence. And while she sort of playfully deflected him, she also never shut the door. He was in love with her. She was very fond of him. And when he proposed to her for the third time on the 3rd of January, 1923, she had begun her diary two days before that. So she clearly had a notion that her life was going to change. I wonder... Um... Sally, you, you, you've been in this business a while. The British royal family refers to itself as the firm. And it's right. an institution and it's built around marriage and dynasty. Why do we 
want real love stories in the British royal family. Your 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 new book is about that. Of course, you've also written uh, books about both Diana and Prince Charles, the two right. characters involved in one of the more unromantic uh, episodes in the history of the British royal family. Given given that it's a dynasty, given it's a firm, why do we want these people to actually fall in love with each other? Who cares? Well, I think it makes the whole business of a royal family a family. And um, I think, um, you know, there are many, um, many people who've written about how important it is to have a model family. We know that they've fallen short um, in any number of instances. But I really believe in the case of George VI and Elizabeth, they they were a genuinely devoted family. And the marriage was a model for their daughters. And it also was a matter for the a model for the country, um, particularly compared to Edward VIII, who was a sort of libertine and hedonist. It was nothing that the people knew until afterwards. But he was. And I think he was. If this, he was there seen, this, this was George VI and Edward VIII's father. Um, well, no, no, I was talking about Edward VIII was the libertine. No, right, oh, so, the, yeah, the, so he, yeah, was, he was the bad king. Do you think if he'd have stayed the royal family, had he not met, met Wallace Simpson and married a more appropriate woman, um, he would have actually brought the family down, the whole institution? I think there was a real danger of that. And I, having read all the things that I read in the course of writing this book, I believe that more than ever, because I had no idea how irresponsible he was as a king. And certainly when it came to the challenges of World War II, where George VI and Elizabeth really stepped up to greatness and they were incredibly brave and unrelentingly opposed to um, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, I think if he had been king, it, I really do think he could have brought the monarchy down. He could have brought Britain down. Do you think there's a connection, Sally, between the the, the democratizing nature of uh, of this marriage and of this couple? It's manifested also in the king's speech. Yeah. They stayed in London during the bombing. They were they were much more accessible than um, than the previous generations of the royal family. Was there a connection between their accessibility, their relative democratic instincts, and the genuine affection, the love affair between this man and woman? Did did those two things go together? I think they did. I mean, they were very, very, they were a real partnership. I was really surprised to find out how much he shared with her. He shared everything with her. And they were very much united in knowing that despite the risks and you're right they were in they stayed they, they they the government forced them to move to windsor in the fall of um, 1940 when the blitz began but they went into they went into london and worked out of buckingham palace that was bombed nine times and the second time they were nearly killed and they had i think because they had such a um of a visible, they were such visible partners and they went out among the people in a way that um, was really unimaginable to um, even is unimaginable today, but for, for very, for very different reasons. But I mean, they were doing it 
before the war, but during the war, they were they were out and they were, you know, they were just mingling with the people in a way that monarchs hadn't. Um, and I think that uh, engendered a lot of admiration and respect and, and even love. I mean, there was a moment actually before the war when they were in Canada in 1939 and they were dedicating a war memorial and there were a lot of veterans there. And Elizabeth said, we must go down and be with them. And they didn't have any police with them. They went with the governor general and his wife and they plunged into this crowd of veterans. And um, and one of them shouted out, I, if Hitler could only see this now. And, you know, they, they really appreciated that. And they could see that this was a couple who really took their duties seriously and were very devoted both to each other and to them. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the Queen. Well, I mean, I refer to her as the Queen Mother, yeah. but in your book, she's Elizabeth. But of course, she was called Elizabeth, and her daughter became a more famous Elizabeth. Yes. Uh, was she a proto-royal feminist? Was there something about her that taught her daughter, Elizabeth II, to run the show when she came to power? Well, I think she would have flinched from the word feminist. But she... Why? Well, I, you know, I think she, she in many ways was a, was a traditional woman. I mean, there were some amusing letters that she issued back and forth with people during the war. When, and she was all in, by the way, for the women who were doing all sorts of things that they had never done before. I mean, basically, the whole of the United Kingdom was working on behalf of defending England and, and um, defeating the Nazis in one way or another. But she was very proud when she went out and she saw women working in factories and, and, the, and, and, and manning any aircraft batteries. So she, she appreciated what women were doing. She gave some wonderful speeches that expressed that appreciation, but she also was very sympathetic to the women who were at home holding everything together. And uh, so I think she was flexible enough to appreciate the varying roles that women could play. Um, and she was, you know, she obviously she gave speeches and she did a lot of, um, you know, she did a lot of volunteer philanthropic war, both uh, philanthropic work, both before the war, during the war and after the war. Um, I love the fact that early in the war, when they when the Blitz began, and they were going out to places. They went to the poorest neighborhoods in London, the East End, south of the Thames, over and over again. And they were, you know, the people appreciated it at some point. At one point, she scoured all the storerooms and attics of the various royal residences, and she put together 60 suites of furniture and had them sent to um, shelters for the homeless. Um, the king, when in his spare time on weekends, would go down into the basement of Windsor Castle and he would, with the various um, male servants who knew how to do this and taught him, they would turn out precision parts for any aircraft guns. And he explained it by saying he wanted to do his bit on the weekends as well as during the week when he was carrying out his duties as king. Did, they, did this outrage some elements of the British aristocracy? Were there, shall we say, more conservative or perhaps reactionary 
earls and dukes and lords who thought this is not how British royals should behave? No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't pick up any of that. Maybe there was, but I read a lot of letters that uh, various grandees, peers, um, had written to uh, the Governor General of Canada, John Buchan, who became Lord Tweens, the author John Buchan, who became Lord Tweensmere, and they approved of everything that they were doing and how they were bonding with the British people in a way that um, raised morale and helped with the whole war effort. So I don't think anybody looked askance at, um, at that sort of democratic There's a element. strong tradition of republicanism in, in, in the United Kingdom, Sally, yes. as you know. Uh, civil wars have been fought around the monarchy. At one point, even we, we the British, executed the king. Did uh, this romantic and very productive relationship between George VI and Elizabeth. Do you think it convinced some Republicans or quasi-Republicans of the value of the royal family? Well, one can only hope that it did because they played such a vital role, both of them, um, not only in bonding with the people, you know, and as I mentioned, the palace was bombed nine times and, um, and afterwards, uh, Queen Elizabeth family said, famously said, now we can look look at the East End in the face. And these were people who lived in the East End, who, you know, who were workers and who might have, you might think they would have been, um, you know, had Republican inclinations, but they were very pro-monarchy because they saw the sacrifices and they saw the level of commitment to uh, doing their duty and helping in any way they could. Um, that's one of the things that George VI wrote in his diary. He said, all I want to do is be useful to the people and um, help them make a better life. And that, I suppose, was a very sort of egalitarian thing to say. They're most remembered now, I guess, as the parents of, of course, Elizabeth II, who just died, and her sister, Princess Margaret, who might not quite have been Edward VIII, but was a much more controversial figure. Yes. What kind of parents were Elizabeth uh, and George VI, given that they had such different daughters? I know. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't account for genetics, I suppose. But they were very devoted parents. And they, in that way, they, you know, they referred to themselves, or he referred to them as us four. And they were a very tight unit. And people noticed that, that they, that they really were um, much stronger as a family than many other, say, many other members of the royal family, both past and contemporary at the time, uh, certainly in the aristocracy. They just spent a lot more time with their daughters. And as you mentioned, they specially trained Elizabeth Lilibet from a very early age even as early as the age of four. Uh, there's a moment in Queen Mary's diary where she talks about how at eight, that, that Lilibet was invited to have um, a tea with the wives of Indian princes. And then on the eve of World War II in 1939, there was a luncheon in Buckingham Palace uh, for the foreign minister of Poland, just about just as Britain was about to sign the treaty with Poland to protect it in the event of Hitler's um, invasion. And there was Lilibet. Uh, she was then 
uh, much older, but she was included in this luncheon with only adults. And she was educated by uh, a specialist in constitutional theory. She learned a lot about history. There was a moment when the American ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, came to lunch at Windsor Castle and he asked her, sort of, well, what's your favorite subject? And she said, geography. We just finished studying the Atlantic coast of the United States. So she was pretty savvy, too. She knew what to say that would please him. Yeah, Joe Kennedy, of course, also is a controversial figure when it comes to yes. uh, the Germans. Um, is it, uh, Of course, England now has a new queen, or Britain has a new queen, King Charles himself, a very controversial figure involved in this catastrophic marriage with Diana now with another woman, uh, Queen Camilla. Is it possible to argue, Sally, that George VI and Elizabeth and then their daughter Elizabeth II were aberrations when it comes to the royal family? They were uniquely skilled at building brand and relating to the people and being genuinely happy in their married life and in their personhood. And that with Charles and Camilla and all this other scandal associated with his sons, we're back back to, to normal broadcasting when it comes to the British royal family of, of rather buffoonish-like characters. Well, I would I would take exception to that. I think I think Charles Obviously, made you know he had a he had a calamitous first marriage. I think his marriage to Camilla since two thousand five has been a very happy one. She has brought him happiness after much unhappiness. They have a lot in common, and for all those decades that he was Prince of Wales, he did an extraordinary number of um, he performed an extraordinary number of services and launched initiatives, uh, the most famous of which is the Prince's Trust. But there were many, many more that, um, you know, in the spirit of Prince George, in the spirit of King George VI, sort of sought to bring business and communities together. In other words, they are carrying out things in together, sort of in the same spirit as George VI and Elizabeth, as are William and Kate. And I guess, as was the case with Princess Margaret, who sort of went off the rails after the period that I wrote about in this book, but it certainly was in the book that I wrote about Elizabeth. Um, you know, they're in, in not every generation, but there are rogues, and Harry is the rogue member of this one. Um, and, Do you think uh, there is a, a comparison could be made between Harry and Elizabeth VIII? Uh, sorry, not Elizabeth. That was a Freudian Edward the Edward yeah. yeah, there is. I think there are some comparisons. Obviously, very, very different because Edward VIII had been a king and Harry was never, you know, unless there was something catastrophic, he was never going to be king and he was going to move further and further down the pecking order. Um, but Edward VIII was um, a very frivolous man. I mean, at one point he did say to one of, when he was king or when he had just become king, he said, you know, it would probably, he said to his private secretary, probably would be better for somebody like Bertie to be king because he understands it and is much would be much better at it than I am. Uh, so he knew that. Um, I'm not sure um, whether Harry appreciates. Is it a coincidence be. that um, both Harry and Edward VIII married American women? 
controversial American women, yeah, Meghan well, Markle there, and, and Wallace Simpson. There are some parallels. Um, and I think, um, you know, in the case of Harry and Meghan, um, he was, I think, sort of a lost soul. And she steered him in a certain direction. And that's where he is now. And whether he will make amends with his father and his brother um, is anybody's guess. But there was never, I mean, in the case of uh, the former Edward VIII, then Duke of Windsor, um, the rupture was irreparable um, in 1936. When Fascinating, he had Sally. Finally, let's go back to um, the, the, the subject that I discussed with Valentin Lowe. I'm sure you're familiar with him and his work. Yes, I know Val. Um, you're an American, so you have some distance and perspective. If the, the British royal family is to transform itself into a 21st century institution, a viable one, um, a successful one, two final questions. Firstly, what can it learn from uh, George VI and Elizabeth, your, 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 your book? Uh, and secondly, how will it have to do things differently? It can't just look back uh, at a hundred year hundred years ago when Britain in the middle of the 20th century was a very different sort of place? Well, I think we can, they can certainly look at the values they represented and the way they dealt with adversity of um, an existential sort. And, um, and they had, and also the thing about George VI, which I, which was so evident in his diaries is how he learned to become a really effective leader. I mean, he wasn't obviously ruling Britain. He was reigning and he was um, operating under the advice of government. But I think he offers a very good model for how, uh, for how a monarch should conduct himself as his daughter did. And I think given Charles's age and the fact that he has kind of sowed his wild oats in many ways, he seems ready to embrace the, you know, albeit more restricted role of a monarch, but knowing that he can use his convening power, for example, um, to bring people together and be that binding force, as well as the lovely phrase, the light above politics, which is one of the most important uh, aspects of being a monarch, I think.